On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you to the April 2020 podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the editor of the CHEST podcast section. I'd like to thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really informative conversation on the evolving criteria for lung transplantation. And today, we're very fortunate to have Drs. Mitchell, Ramos, and Velipo as our guests, and we'll go ahead by introducing each of them. So first, uh, Dr. Mitchell. Hi, I'm Alicia Mitchell, and I'm a medical researcher from Sydney, Australia. My main interests include characterizing the respiratory virome, particularly in transplant, and the evolving selection criteria for lung transplantation. Thanks for joining us, uh, Alicia. So uh, our next guest is uh, Dr. Ramos. Hi, I'm Kathy Ramos, and I am at the University of Washington in Seattle, and I have a background of a master's in epidemiology and have been on faculty since 2017. I practice in both cystic fibrosis and lung transplant clinically, and my research has been focused on advanced CF-related lung disease and the timing of referral for lung transplantation. Thanks for joining us, Kathy. And our last guest is um, Dr. Velipore. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, um, I'm Marian Valapur. I'm an adult lung transplant pulmonologist at the Cleveland Clinic, and my research is focused on outcomes of lung transplantation. I, I'm also the lead lung transplant investigator for the United States uh, Scientific Registry of Transplant Recipients, where we oversee analysis of all U.S. lung transplant data and impact of our allocation system. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, all three of you. Uh, we're very fortunate to have such experts to lead this discussion on lung transplantation. So today we're going to start off uh, speaking to Alicia from uh, Sydney, Australia. So, uh, Dr. Mitchell, lung transplantation has very strict selection criteria. Maybe you could uh, tell us what those criteria are and why they are so strict. And before I get there, I just want to encourage our um, the uh, listeners to read the three articles published by these authors. And the first one by Dr. Mitchell was entitled Lung Transplantation, the Evolving Criteria for Referral and Patient Selection in the April 2020 issue of CHEST. Uh, so Alicia, please go ahead. Thank you. Uh, so many of our readers might know that the selection criteria are advised by the International Society for Heart and Lung Transplantation Consensus Guidelines. We are currently on the third iteration of this document. However, I know that uh, the other two um, doctors on this podcast are in the process of working on the fourth iteration. This is because the criteria for lung transplantation are constantly evolving as we get more experience in this field and our, we can measure outcomes better. Um, there are some absolute and relative contraindications that are um, indicated in the guidelines at the moment. Um, and these include, uh, as absolute guidelines, uh, some patient, patients who have had recent malignancy within two years, untreatable significant dysfunction of another organ system, other acute medical instability, chronic resistant infection, significant chest wall deformity, uh, class 2 or 3 obesity, substance abuse issues, or a demonstrated inability to cope and comply with medical therapy post-transplant. There are some other relative contraindications, and I think this is where the lines are starting to blur, and we're seeing that new information is coming forward that means that these may change going forward. These include older age with a lower functional status, class 1 obesity, 
severe malnutrition or osteoporosis, mechanical ventilation and or ECMO, and other certain infections. We also have to um, make sure that treatment is optimised for other comorbid comorbid conditions, um, particularly atherosclerotic disease, diabetes, mellitus, um, and gastroesophageal reflux. Um, so it is important that these are taken into consideration when we are choosing the um, patients who we are putting forward for lung transplantation. They are designed to ensure, achieve enduring success for the recipient um, since Organs, as we know, are a scarce resource, and we want to make sure that we're getting optimum benefit uh, from those. However, individual uh, lung transplant units um, throughout the world, as they have more experience in different areas, may stretch these criteria successfully, and that is how we've got to where we are today. Um, However, now we have a large um, database of data surrounding these outcomes and uh, different units that have been stretching these boundaries. We see that this kind of evolving science, which was once only based on expert opinion, is now becoming more evidence-based. Great. I think you set the stage really well for us, Alicia. Uh, and this will promise for uh, the next author, Dr. Ramos, who um, you and your group published a paper um, on underweight patients with cystic fibrosis um, have acceptable survival after lung transplantation. Maybe you could tell us about why you did this uh, study, what your key findings were, and if there were any limitations. Absolutely. Thank you for the introduction. So as was just highlighted, candidate selection for lung transplantation is crucial for sort of distinguishing patients who will have a reasonable, reasonable benefit or acceptable benefit from transplant from those um, patients who are sort of destined for a poor outcome. And low BMI, uh, malnutrition specifically, uh, has been used as an absolute contraindication for transplant uh, at many centers, a majority of centers at, in the United States and probably worldwide. And the, what prompted this study was that we were seeing in our CF clinic that patients would be referred for transplant, and they seemed like reasonable candidates aside from the fact that their, their BMI was, was less than 18, um, and 18 was the, was the absolute um, threshold for BMI um, eligibility um, at the time. And we wondered whether there was any data to show how patients with CF and low BMI actually do post-transplant. And so we looked at the UNOS registry between two, for patients transplanted between 2005 and 2016, and we identified individuals with um, cystic fibrosis and a BMI in less than 17, and we compared um, those individuals to uh, patients with CF and a, and a BMI above 17, um, and also to individuals with COPD. And the reason we did that is because COPD makes up a, um, a large percentage of um, transplant recipients in the U.S., um, and we also included patients who have um, IPF and compared those to the reference group of COPD as well. And we looked at post-transplant median survival. And what we found was that um, individuals with CF and a BMI less than 17 had median survival after lung transplant that was at least as good as the other groups that are undergoing transplant. And so, yes, low BMI is a risk factor for doing um, poorly post-transplant when compared to other CF uh, patients with higher BMI, um, but they meet an acceptable threshold of um, 
you know, outcome post-transplant when it comes to survival. And so that was sort of the, the prompting for our study was to look and see whether there were any data so, so um, BMI, importantly, BMI um, less than 17 is almost exclusively present for CF patients. So this malnutrition issue is almost exclusively a CF problem. And what we thought is knowing that patients with CF have the longest post-transplant survival of any other diagnosis, um, any disease that gets um, transplanted, um, how much worse off are patients when they undergo transplant with malnutrition? And when we looked, they actually have survival, median survival that's as good or better than the COPD patients um, and as good or better than the IPF patients. COPD and IPF make up a majority of transplant recipients, and the CF patients with malnutrition do just as well as those other patient populations who undergo transplant. And so... There, there was a lack of data for this um, group, and basically we were hoping to reframe the conversation um, at lung transplant candidate selection committees in, in order to say, yes, this is a risk factor that should be adjusted, that should be modified if possible, you know, focus on nutrition interventions, um, improve the BMI if possible, but it shouldn't be an absolute contraindication in isolation uh, because it's a marker of disease severity. It's a, a marker of how sick these CF patients are. Um, and they do, you know, have an acceptable outcome post-transplant when it comes to survival. It's comparable to other groups that we transplant. Yeah, that's a really important finding, the fact that you should have uh, data driving uh, your decisions. So I'm going to turn our attention to Alicia briefly. Um, you had the opportunity to review um, uh, Kathy's paper. What did you take away from her finding? Uh when I reviewed this paper, I thought it was a very interesting paper, very well done and very scientifically sound. Uh, I thought it was very important that we are now going through and analysing the data and the outcomes that we have for these patients, especially being able to use um, the UNOS database in the LAS era to see how um, these patients are doing. And particularly, it's important to compare outcomes you know, across groups. Um, between indications and not only within indications because this is, you know, the organs that we are transplanting are a scarce resource. We do need to think about who uh, is going to derive the most benefit from them and it isn't fair to our patients to only compare within disease process and I think this is a very important finding that this group has shown. I agree. So we'll turn our attention to uh, Dr. Valapur's paper, and this was uh, entitled Extremes of Age, Decreased Survival in Adults After Lung Transplant. Miriam, why don't you go ahead? So our group um, had noted that despite significant scientific advances and improvements in post-transplant uh, care um, in the recent decades, uh, long-term survival, that sur and we defined that as survival greater than five years after lung transplant, had plateaued in the last decade um, in among uh, lung transplant recipients in the U.S. We hypothesized that, that a possible explanation for our inability to make any gains in survival in our patients, and I might add for the first time since the beginning of lung transplantation that has been the case, um, maybe that there's a significant increase in the age of lung transplant candidates um, in the last decade. To give you a sense of that, in 2008, um, 
those that were over the age of 65 comprised about 15% of our recipients, but in 2017, they represented 30% of our recipients. So what we tried to do in this study was characterize the association of long-term survival with age. We identified a modern cohort of adult lung transplant recipients after the implementation of the lung allocation score or the LAS system um, that went into effect in 2005 to represent current practices and guidelines and a modern cohort. Uh, We ended up analyzing Uh, 14,253 U.S. lung transplant recipients and used multiple methodologies to adjust for all known donor and recipient comorbidities that were captured in this database, which is we used um, the SRTR database, which is the same as the UNOS database. Um, And we tried to understand what contributed to post-transplant mortality, and we confirmed our finding, again, by using multiple methodology. Our key findings were that age is the most reliable and important risk factor for death at all time points after transplant, and our oldest and youngest experienced the worst survival. Second was that the effect of age on survival becomes stronger as time from transplant increases. And finally, that what the, the risk factors for death differ by age. Medical factors are important across all age groups, but the social determinants of health uh, started to play a role in survival for patients that were less than 30 years of age. Um, Our findings need to be taken in context. So this was a U.S.-specific registry. So the, uh, you know, I would feel most comfortable stating this about our U.S. transplant recipients. And um, while this is a pretty comprehensive registry, uh, every comorbidity and its nuances are not captured in the registry. For example, we we don't know um, how many patients had reflux, and that we know that's a contributor. Uh, to mortality, uh, long-term survival after transplant, but it is a rather robust database. Great. So, uh, Alicia, Mary mentions her uh, the key uh, limitations in her uh, study. When you read the paper, what did you take away from it, and how could we have addressed these limitations, or, or how do we um, make sense of these findings in terms of the limitations that she mentioned? Uh, I understand that there are limitations to any study that we do, and obviously when you are just analysing a database, there are inherently uh, going to be some problems there. However, I think this data that this group have um, provided us with is very important. Uh, We have limited uh, analyses available to us on how the impacts of age um, affect you know, the outcomes for our transplant patients. And I think what they've shown that not only um, are more older recipients um, coming through now, that younger age, you know, the people that are being transplanted at younger ages uh, also seem to have uh, worse survival compared to those in the middle age group. So I think it is important that they've been able to pull out these different factors that modify these outcomes. Um, and hopefully in the future we can work on different interventions to help address these factors and continue to uh, strive for better outcomes for our patients. 
Okay. So um, I'll turn our attention back to... Oh, I was going yeah, to make ahead. a comment. Yeah, I wanted to make a comment on that. Um, so, it, and not to put Miriam on the on the spot, but I I wonder with the increasing risk of post transplant mortality and the way that the lung allocation score is designed, currently the higher your age goes, the higher your lung allocation score goes, which increases the um, the likelihood of of being matched or or allocated a a lung transplant, and I wonder whether there's any discussion about whether a modification to the to the way the age is incorporated into the lung allocation score. Um, any discussions have been underway. Um, yes. So, um, <laughs> so yes, the organ, the U.S. allocation system. So maybe it's, if it's okay, like, I should just explain it a bit so that the conversation yes, makes sense. Um, so the current U.S. allocation system utilizes a calculated score, which is the lung allocation score, the LAS, as is often referred to. And the LAS gives more weight to the risk of death while waiting for a transplant than it does to post-transplant survival, which is why um, age is a big driver of, uh, of access to transplant in the U.S., because the older you are, the more likely you are to die while waiting, and also because our older lung transplant uh, candidates are, tend to have the diagnosis of pulmonary fibrosis that carries a higher weightless mortality. So what this combination has resulted in is um, preferentially distributing organs to, to, our, to our candidates who are older. And now there is a, dis in, um, there's a discussion if post-transplant survival should be considered um, with more weight in our distribution scheme. And uh, because at the moment, only one year post-transplant mortality is considered in the LAS calculation and is given less weight than weightless mortality. In fact, there is no consideration of long-term long post-transplant survival at this time um, in our organ allocation system. So, reading between the lines, there, you're saying that older patients are getting the benefit of having older age. Is it possible that our cystic fibrosis patients are being, I wouldn't say discriminated against, but being disadvantaged by the current lung allocation score? It depends on how you think of advantage and disadvantage. If you're going to design a system that preferentially gives access to people who have a higher risk of death, uh, well, then, if you're older, you have a higher risk of death. Um, and so, yes, the, the cystic fibrosis patients have less access because they have less risk of mortality on the wait list. Gotcha. Your response to that, Kathleen? I think that um, Miriam's discussion of the post-transplant survival is, is spot on, and I think that if, in fact, longer-term survival was considered, then I think that the balance of um, the lung transplant recipient um, diagnoses may shift a little away from the patients with pulmonary fibrosis and, and potentially towards individuals with CF or even COPD um, because both of those groups have longer post-transplant, you know, five-year, higher five-year survival um, compared to idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. But all of this is said in knowing that there are, is a limited 
resource for um, donor lungs, and it's never easy to talk about taking away um, an advantage, quote-unquote, from, from one group to try to give it to another group. Um, it raises the ethical concerns of um, how do we distribute these. And so I think having a continued ongoing discussion of what is the best utilization of this precious resource is important. And I personally believe that we should be looking at longer-term survival because the one-year outcomes are very, very close across the diagnoses. Um, But when you get further out, three-year survival, five-year survival, or even longer, I think that there would be um, a widening of the gap between the diagnoses and uh, an adjustment to the approach to allocation. So, Kathy, you brought up a really interesting issue regarding the ethical uh, implications, and uh, Miriam and her group gave a really great uh, paragraph in their paper about the ethical and policy implications, and it gets down to what kind of society we are that we prioritize uh, certain patients to get uh, lung transplantations. So, maybe for the benefit of our audience, Miriam, you could just uh, review, you mentioned Fair Innings perspective and Min-Max perspective in ethical and policy implications for lung transplantation. So in in allocation of very limited resources, uh, you basically try to balance two components of a system. You try to balance two basic principles of ethics. One is equity and the other is utility. So let me just address utility, which is the easier one. Um, So in in a system in organ allocation, we think of utility as survival. Um, so which, how do you distribute so you maximize survival? And usually people think of maximizing survival in a population. On the equity component um, is how do you give equal access to a resource? And in distribution of, uh, of organs, especially if you're comparing, you know, if you're thinking, do I give organs, uh, if you have a young person and an older person and they have equal outcomes after uh, equal uh, outcomes after transplant you justify giving organs to someone who hasn't had um, a, an experience of a full life um, such as their older older counterpart so the fair innings perspective provides guidance by arguing that every individual deserves to experience a full life and that societal resources should be expended to maximize this chance. And a 25-year-old hasn't had equal access to life um, or as many years of life as a 70-year-old. And in that way, you preferentially give a resource to a younger person. The LAS, as it stands, basically fails on both components. So it's now what we're doing by distributing by distributing um, the way we are. We are not only uh, not giving access using the fair innings or most equitable um, way of distribution among adult recipients. We're also not maximizing net utility. Kathy, your response to that, and then I'll turn to Alicia after you. I 100% agree with everything Miriam said. Well, no one ever said that, but good. <laughs> um, Alicia, um, you've had the opportunity to hear. So this is data coming from the United States. Um, how does that compare to what's happening in Australia, and what, are, what is your perspective on this issue? Um, 
It seems that the LAS is evolving and hopefully it gets to a point where it's a little bit more equitable and fair for recipients. And I feel like it's a process and it's a difficult one in that uh, we don't have an LAS system in Australia. Um, it's a small, a much smaller um, kind of transplant um, well, centres. We only have four in Australia and one in New Zealand, and the resources are allocated between those. Um, and it's quite, um, it's a bit more casually run in that each of the centres uh, communicate with each other and work out how things um, need to be allocated on a kind of case-by-case basis in some ways. So it's a very differently run system, um, and it's hard to compare between the two. But... I don't think that there's a right way or a wrong way of doing this. We're just doing our best and trying to make it all work. Gotcha. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Just to go along with what Alicia was saying, this is an evolving system. So now the system is 15 years old, and we are re- looking at it again, given our experience with it. But Alicia's right that this is evolving, and now we're coming to grapple with these questions. Gotcha. So I want to turn attention slightly to um, the methodology um, of both your studies. So uh, I definitely want to commend you both and your teams for outstanding research in a field which, as you all stated in your introductions, is led primarily by expert opinion and limited data. And the fact that you're able to put this data out is fantastic. But uh, some people may say, you know, this is still retrospective data. Um, What we found is an association, no causality. Are there any other studies in uh, the works, or do we need to do other studies in lung transplantation to get down to these really important questions of if this is a, I mean, this is a scarce resource, how do we make sure that we're allocating this vital scarce resource to the patients that will benefit the most and throughout the most benefit? Um, I'll start with uh, Miriam, and then I'll go to Kathy. So there, you know, multiple investigators have tried to look at this, um, and the studies had been limited based on uh, the cohorts used. Some were older studies, um, the way they defined age, which was in categories, and it crossed over multiple allocation systems. We've, I think we have um, successfully overcome those limitations. And given that there, there's many registry also uh, uh, um, reports that support what this, uh, what we've shown, I think the question of um, the contribution of age to post-transplant survival um, has been answered. I feel pretty comfortable saying that at this point. Um, where we could do better is trying to understand what is contributing to the divergent pathways to poor survival among older patients and younger patients. And where I would feel more comfortable trying to understand what is happening to our younger patients is having a registry that has more robust way of capturing uh, social determinants of health. Um, and their contribution to life expectancy. And our current registries do not do that. Okay, thanks, Miriam. Kathy? Well, I'm going to piggyback off of what Miriam said about social determinants of health and, and just say that um, our study used the UNOS data and um, we looked at individuals with low BMI and we we had to 
couch our dis- our discussion in the fact that in isolation, low BMI does not appear to be a risk factor that should prohibit transplant for these for these patients, but it's not clear whether or not there are other factors that lead to malnutrition, specifically poverty and um, limited access to food or um, inability to sort of adhere to recommended therapies based on life circumstance. And these things are um, not captured well in registries at all, and we know that they are associated with an increased risk of death without transplant. Um, They're associated with not being referred for transplant. And so um, trying to uh, figure out a way to intervene upon the social determinants of health is is clearly a, a very important goal. And I think that when we think about individuals who have a low BMI, it's not that we, we think everyone with a low BMI should just be considered no further investigation. All candidates for lung transplant need to have a um, thorough investigation to make sure that they will have an acceptable post-transplant outcome. But I think these data really um, should recalibrate the approach to risk factors and make um, committees really think of the patient as a whole and whether or not, despite a risk factor, they meet an acceptable threshold of um, acceptability for predicted post-transplant survival. So this is just another data point for the candidate selection committees to consider. But I do think um, if we could improve upon our registries to collect more granular data, that would be helpful. Or perhaps it needs to be something at a consortium level where you know, several individual centers get together and pool some more granular data um, to try to figure this out. That's really great advice. Yeah. And so, uh, Kathy, I want to take this opportunity to pick your brain a little bit. So you mentioned before we started this podcast that um, there's a number of patients uh, with lung transplantation who are getting worked up for that who are at risk of uh, exposure to coronavirus, which has uh, hit the United mm-hmm. States in the last uh, couple of weeks. So maybe you could just give us a, a few words as to what the thought process is now in terms of how should patients who have been worked up for lung transplant or have received lung transplantation should be thinking about coronavirus? Well, I think I'm in a hotbed here in Seattle, as I I mentioned uh, before the podcast started. Um, And I think that we just need to continue to have common sense measures. Wash your hands. Don't go close to folks who are displaying respiratory symptoms. Um, Try to avoid unnecessary risks and follow what the CDC recommends on their website. I don't think that there's um, anything specific, I would say, related to a lung transplant or pre-lung trans population, aside from the things that they already are doing to avoid getting influenza and other respiratory viruses. Okay, great. So uh, before we start winding this podcast down, um, I just want to uh, pick your brains, each of you, one last time. You've had the opportunity to prepare for this podcast, and we may have covered some uh, information uh, while we were chatting, but there's always something that you thought about really long and hard, and I'd really appreciate the opportunity for you to share with us um, if we haven't covered it as yet. So I'll start with Alicia, and then I'll go to Kathy, and then Miriam. Alicia? Um. I think what these studies have shown us is that we do need more data, we do need more studies, and we do need to evolve as this data becomes available. 
Uh, I think the landscape is continuing to change, and particularly for cystic fibrosis, you know, we have new therapies that are slowly becoming available. There's a new cystic fibrosis triple therapy that was recently approved by the FDA, and it seems promising. So I think we just need to continue to consider um, how our patients are doing and, you know, how we can improve outcomes for each of them. And those need to be continuously updated um, in our decision-making for our patients in terms of who uh, should receive a transplant, who will do best in transplants. And um, the other two authors on this podcast and the ISHLT um, are doing great work in continuously updating the guidelines and um, trying to achieve the best outcomes for our patients. So I think this is an exciting area and an evolving area, and it's something we just need to keep working on. Agree. Kathy? I think that I would echo the fact that this is an evolving field, and one thing that um, always strikes me is the amount of uncertainty that we as providers and our patients have to face when making decisions because we have data, but the data will lag behind what is actually happening in practice. Um, you know, registry data is available um, potentially up to the minute. Um, however, when you go back to analyze it, you have to include patients from potentially a different era of care. And so even within the group um, of patients in our cohort and our manuscript between 2005 and 2016, when you look at patients who have um, have survived their first year post-transplant, median survival is really getting up to nine or almost ten years within the CF co- cohort, and I and that includes people from fifteen years who were transplanted fifteen years ago, and I think that these data get better every single year. You see the ISHLT registry report updates that the median survival is improving across across the, at least for the CF patients, it increases every year, maybe not um, across all diagnoses, as Miriam was pointing out. Um, and so I think that we, when we explain the risks and benefits to our patients, sort of understanding the uncertainty uh, when it comes to the outcomes and that we're hopeful that things are getting better. Um, and the incorporation of new therapies like triple therapy for patients with CF, um, Alexacaftor, Tezacaftor, Ivacaftor, um, and how that may decrease the prevalence of severe malnutrition at the time of a lung transplant evaluation um, and whether or not that's useful in the post-lung transplant setting as well. I think there are a lot of questions to be answered and there's a lot of uncertainty, but um, these data can help us um, to uncover some areas where there's, where there's certainty. I agree. Thank you, Kathy. Um, and Miriam, you get the last word. Well, um, so I would say that um, rationing limited life-saving um, resources require difficult societal-level conversations. And I say society because we are distributing resources that are given to us by society. Organs are given to us um, by our donors, and we need to distribute based on societal imperatives. 
So what I want to make sure is that this study is taken in context. What we are not suggesting is setting hard uh, age cutoffs for organ distribution. What we are suggesting is that now we think about um, our allocation scheme and how we can limit um, uh, risks of mortality to optimize survival. And that will require some um, some thinking on all our parts and how we will ultimately mitigate risk and distribute resources. I think that's a great way to end the podcast. And I want to give uh, all three of you, uh, Drs. Mitchell, Ramos, and Bellapo, a very big uh, thank you for a, a really great conversation, very engaging, very informative. And I want to thank our chess community for joining us. Uh, I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast. <laughs>